What's up gamers and welcome to Lost at Sea Gaming. I am Hulking Yoda, the captain of this ship, the SS Gamer. And in this episode, get ready to travel through the lands of Valistia as I dive into its details in my review of Final Fantasy 16. Before we jump into the details of this game's story, let's take a few minutes to talk about some things that you may not have known about the game or its developer in The Breakdown. The development team behind Final Fantasy XVI at Square Enix is honestly one that has a vast array of talent. The game itself, as you'll see in my detailed thoughts of each category that I'm about to review here in a few moments, there's a lot there. And the developers that were responsible for each of their respective departments, if you will, of the game, like combat or story or a lead director, those kinds of things, they all had a lot of great backgrounds as far as their careers are concerned in games they have previously worked on or series. For example, the producer, the lead producer, and the director of Final Fantasy 16 both worked very closely together on Final Fantasy 14, the most recent online iteration of the series. So, of course, uh, you probably have that trust built up between the two of them that carried over into this game. Now, I don't know who came first, where Square Enix, whether they asked the producer of Final Fantasy XIV or the director, I, I don't know which one they asked first and who brought who with, but ultimately they did well enough on the previous project to have the faith put in them by Square Enix to carry on the next mainline single-player Final Fantasy game. And also, the combat director in this game is very interesting because I know a lot of people online have said a lot of negative things, to be honest with you, about the combat in this game, and I'm sorry, but I absolutely loved the combat. It did take some adjusting to, but there were a lot of things that were different from previous Final Fantasy iterations that I liked the differences. So we'll get into that in the, in the review, but as far as the combat director, just an interesting tidbit here is the fact that he was, in fact, a lead designer on Devil May Cry 5. So you do see a lot of similarities within the combat here where he kind of was inspired by some of what he had done and been around in Devil May Cry 5. But in my personal opinion, was it good or bad? We'll see here when I get into those details. But overall, just saying that there was a, a very mixed group of lead directors, designers, story writers. I mean, the story, the guy who wrote the story in this game was previously writing stories for Final Fantasy Tactics. Now, that's an old-school Final Fantasy sub-series that a lot of you may not have either heard of or played, but that's back from the PS1 days, and, man, that was some very interesting stuff back there. Very big departure from your typical traditional Final Fantasy game. Regardless, you have a lot of inspiration from that medieval, classic, uh, I would say, Middle European era that was in the tactics games that you obviously see represented here in Final Fantasy 16. So a lot of great, great, talented people working on this game from all over, uh, whether it was within Square Enix like most of them or the Devil May Cry 5 designer. So now let's jump into the details of this game's story and see what my thoughts were. The story of Final Fantasy XVI centers around protagonist Clive Rossfield. And I would even go as far as to say that not just he as the main protagonist, but the entire Rossfield family, in a sense, is what the game really revolves around throughout its entirety. Now, obviously, you as the player control Clive, and so therefore, if you're like me, you really kind of get into his headspace and kind of experience the story firsthand from his viewpoint. 
and kind of feel his emotions as you go through the different things that he does. Now, when the game first begins, we have 15-year-old Clive, who we're introduced to, along with his brother Joshua, who's just a few years younger than he is. And it's a very unique situation because in this game's world, it's the world of Valestia. And there are two continents in this world that are primarily focused on within the game. And those are called the Twins because they're pretty much right next to each other. They're just separated by this strait of water. And they have the names of Ash and Storm. Now, Storm is the continent where the Rossfields have their duchy, their home. And it is here that we are introduced to a young Clive sparring in the fields outside of the castle. And basically, it's just kind of an introduction for the game's purposes of how to perform the combat within the game. But we're very quickly shown the connection that Clive has with his brother, Joshua. And in this world of Valestia, there is magic, but magic is only given to a certain select few that are born with it. Now, these that are born with the ability to use magic without the assistance of crystals are called bearers. Now, these bearers, there are many different outlooks that different cultures and people throughout the lands have on bearers. The people of Rosaria, which is the duchy where the Rossfields reside, those people and their leader, the father of Clive and Joshua, Elwyn Rossfield, he is very much an advocate for equality with bearers. And it would make sense because his son, Joshua, is the actual dominant of the icon the phoenix. Now, what happens is icons, dominance, what all these different terms mean, an icon is essentially an elemental god of the past that has control over a certain specific element. And in this case, the phoenix was known to be the god of fire. And anybody who in that line of Rossfields, it's, it's certain lines, basically, that as you progress throughout the game, you discover that are basically the only ones that are connected to icons in that way to where only that line of a family will ever be able to at some point in its descendancy be able to be a dominant of an icon. So in this case, the Rossfields are known as the dominant line of genealogy and whatnot of the Phoenix. So Joshua, even though he's the second born, it was assumed that Clive being the first born would become the dominant of the Phoenix. But that is not meant to be as it was passed on to Joshua. So at this point, the dominant of the phoenix, they're supposed to have a shield. There are many people who are known to be shields of these dominants. And Clive is his direct shield, his protector, essentially, is what these shields, their main purpose and goal in life is to, at all costs, protect the dominant. Well, there's all kinds of traditions and cultures and all kinds of stuff going on here. And we see in the very beginning that Joshua almost seems to be sick. He's coughing up blood and there's different things that happen between him and Clive that we see very early on. But I'm not going to, I don't have the time. Unfortunately, I would love to go into every little detail with you of this story and its characters, but I, I can't do that. Unfortunately, let's just kind of cliff notes the version of it all and say that in the beginning here and kind of the prologue of the game and kind of setting up everybody for you, as far as the main characters are concerned, you have Clive and Joshua who are brothers. They have a very good friend named Jill, who is a neighboring family she belongs to that has 
come to visit quite often and is very much close to Clive and also looks after Joshua. And she has a pet puppy whose name is Torgal, who follows her everywhere, also has quite the attachment to Clive and Joshua. So these four main characters are who we're introduced to and kind of given a little bit of a backstory on in the very early stages of the game. Now, the buildup in the beginning is all about getting to Phoenix Gate, which is a location, kind of an old battle fortress that's underground as this ancient temple where there's kind of a rite of passage that happens between the dominant of the Phoenix and the Phoenix uh, icon itself. So Joshua was meant to go here and do these things and go through this process. Well, let's just say that things happen to where there is a lot of betrayal and death and sadness and separation that comes from going to Phoenix Gate. And the, the story at that point kind of flashes forward and it goes forward about 20 years. And so now we have Clive who's in his 30s and he essentially has been a mercenary all this time. And he's doing odd jobs here or there. And the other name that certain people can give to bearers of magic are branded. And what happens and what that means is there is a facial tattoo that is ingrained and, and etched into a person's face, a bearer's face, to outwardly signify to any and everyone that these people are bearers or they're branded. They're slaves, essentially, is how they're looked at, and lesser beings. And that is the contrast to the Rossfield and Elwin's outlook on bearers, is the other side of the country looks at bearers and magic wielders as slavery. And the reason why is because non-bearers, the only way they have to access magic is through crystals. And these crystals, they do not have the same kind of energy or uh, th there's only so much energy within one crystal that you can use before it's used up. Whereas a bearer, they can continue to use and use and use and use magic. The thing is, the interesting thing about this concept here is uh, as the more they use the magic, they slowly start to turn to stone inside and outside. So you see different branded and bearers throughout the game that have a, a white stone, kind of almost like a limestone looking foot or hand or different parts of their bodies. And eventually, if they use too much, they, they completely turn to stone and die, essentially. So it's really kind of crazy, some of the specifics and, and backstory and details uh, that went into the writing of this story and its lore and the history of this world. Now, the other big part of magic and crystals is the mother crystals. And there are multiple ones spread throughout the different continents. And each mother crystal is supposed to be the source of magic within Valestia and across the twins. And let's just say that along the way, Clive's journey brings him into the interaction with a ton of characters and I don't want to go into a whole lot of details because I really don't want to be spoiling, spoiling anything for you guys out there. But let's just say his adventure takes him into contact with a lot of different characters. And there's a lot of roller coaster ride of emotions and ups and downs and betrayals again and just newfound emotions and friends and love and loss and all kinds of that. I mean, it's just a wide gamut of things. And ultimately, the driving force in the story becomes... We have to destroy these mother crystals because they, in a sense, because they are a source of magic and, and power, are dividing the lands of this world. And we want everybody to live and die on their own terms, not as slaves or branded or bearers. We want everybody to be equal. 
So that is kind of a guiding premise through the bulk of the game. And I just want to say that the story in general really, really captivated me. This is a story that I honestly will argue and debate as potentially my favorite Final Fantasy story. And I've played pretty much every Final Fantasy since Final Fantasy VII. And I love some characters and stories across all the games from seven until now at 16. But I can't explain to you enough or, or tell you enough, listeners, the amount of resonation that the character of Clive Rossfield had with me and how much I loved his character. I loved his character arc and all the different things that he goes through. You just kind of, man, can't help but feel for the guy and want this man to succeed and what he's doing here and ultimately where his journey leads him. So... In addition to not just an amazing story in general, but I've already talked a lot about the la the lore and the background of this world and the characters, and I can't explain again or tell you another game that I can think of in recent memory that had this amount of attention to detail and just absolutely fascinating, amazing backstory and lore to get lost in. I just absolutely loved it and ate it up. And I love it in any kind of medium where it does things like what this game did, where I've already used terms like branded and bearers and icons and dominance and these kinds of words where it's kind of its own language, if you will. And it's exclusive to this world and this game. But while you're playing it, man, you just feel kind of, you feel special in a way because you feel part of something, because you know what the lingo is, if that makes sense. Maybe I'm crazy, but that's how I feel about it, and I just absolutely loved every second of this game's story. It was mature, it was darker in tone than other Final Fantasies. I know a lot of people have complained about that, but I absolutely loved it. I appreciated it for it. I loved the character development of all the characters in this game. Every single one of them in their own way. Even the enemies and the antagonists were extremely well written, extremely well acted, and just had just an amazing story to them. And a lot of this was grounded as well to where I could almost feel like this could be a reality somewhere in a different parallel universe or what whatnot. Like it was just, it was so good, gamers. And I can't tell you how many times I almost cried in this game. My wife did say she cried. And there was just multiple parts in this game that just really get you and make you that emotional. And I, I man, there was just such a connection to the main character and all the characters in the game that you travel with uh, over the course of this experience. And side quests, I will say, as far as another piece of the story, outside of the main story, yeah, sure, the beginning side quests were very much fetch quests, and I was really disappointed initially. But let me tell you, gamers, do not give up on this game or its side quests, because as you progress further into the game, I'd say probably about halfway, the back half of the game, they just keep getting better and better and better and better. And they, oh, it's just so good. Absolutely good. The side quest stories, the individual stories, the, the lore and, and everything about the world of Alistia. Oh, I just, I want more. I want to still be in that world. I didn't want to leave it. I wanted to continue learning more. And that was the beauty of it. And uh, what I loved about it too, is speaking of lore and the backstory, you can actually go to a character, Harpocrates, or he's also known as nickname is Tomes, <laughs> ironically, because he surrounds himself with tomes and books. But the bottom line is you can really lose yourself and dive into the deep history there and the written record and just kind of learn all this backstory and stuff as well, which I did. And I just, I loved it. So story, Arguably my favorite story in all of Final Fantasy, and it's also one of the greatest stories I have ever experienced in any medium, but definitely also in video games specifically, and I just can't recommend experiencing this story enough.
So now let's go check out and see what my thoughts were on the game's graphics and sound. Gamers, as we look at the graphics and sound for Final Fantasy 16, I'm going to start off first with the graphics. Now, when I talk about graphics, I'll focus on the details of character models and environments first, but I also have to really stress the amazingness of the frame rate and the smoothness and fluidity of gameplay during insane combat scenarios as we go on. But first, the character models. Character models in this game are absolutely gorgeous. I mean, every character looks extremely realistic, in my opinion. They all have great facial animations, bodily animations. Their lip syncing to their voice acting is perfect. And obviously, there are some times when you're talking to different characters like NPCs and just the random world aspect of things where it's not a cutscene or something extremely important that you can tell that the developers didn't do the exact lip syncing to what's being said, but that personally doesn't bother me. Overall, when it really counts, I mean, the lip syncing is perfect. And again, everything just moves and looks very real and very good. I had said earlier, I feel like Square Enix was going for a more grounded Final Fantasy, if that makes sense. And they definitely did that, not just in the storyline, but also in the visuals of the characters in its world. I loved how each character definitely had kind of their own identity. You know, Clive, the main protagonist, he has this black and red color scheme going on with his outfits. And I loved all the different outfits. He goes through multiple ones from the beginning of the game up to a certain point. I loved, obviously, what was ultimately his outfit for the duration of the game. But every single one of them, each one I liked more and more. And I just, I love that color combination of black and red. I just think it looks great. And it made perfect sense for Clive being the character that he is and being the dominant of the certain icon that he is, which I'll leave that, uh, well, it's not really a spoiler. He's the, uh, he's the dominant of the icon, Ifrit. So I just thought it was great. I mean, you had Jill, who was also the dominant of Shiva. So, of course, she's wearing blue and white. And Joshua was the dominant of Phoenix, so he's wearing kind of a red and uh, black color scheme as well. But bottom line, all the characters were extremely distinguishable one from another, and I loved just taking in all the different interpretations and styles and looks that they had to show off. Now, when it came to the world of Valistia, oh man, I absolutely fell in love with every area in this game. And each one of them had its own unique feel to it. I talked a lot about in my captain's quarters, the uh, desert area, the Valkroy. And I just, for whatever reason, even though there's something as barren and, and wastelandish as a desert, I loved the Valkroy because just the way that the different canyons and chasms that it had, there was this river that ran through. Uh, that was just kind of following you in different areas, the mountains in the distance. You had the different oasises that you would find as you go through of the tiny little villages or remnants of the fallen, this ancient race of beings that came many centuries before the humans that are living there now on the Valestian lands. And I just absolutely loved it. The different castles and forests the the forests i mean they were just so dense with foliage it was just awesome and it looked good too it didn't look you know some games especially back in the day you you'd have leaves or branches that looked like they were cut out of a, a coloring book or something that is definitely not the case in this game i mean the, the foliage looks real and it is so dense that it just adds a level of realism to it and i loved it 
the swamplands. I mean, every kind of imaginable area you could think of to go to, Final Fantasy 16 has that option for you. And visually, the developers definitely, the designers, hit the mark on these environments. Now, one thing I will say I was disappointed in, and not a knock on the game, but man, I was really hoping for a snowy, capped, mountainous, icy type area to go to. And I know that that is mentioned and referenced throughout the course of the game, the, the northern areas of the continent of Storm. And I really hoped that we were going to get to go there at some point in the game. Unfortunately, we didn't. I do know that it was put out there that the director has uh, of the game has said that, hey, fans have been asking for more. Maybe we will do DLC because there wasn't any plans to do DLC post or pre-launch initially. So we'll see what happens there. But man, the visuals they had on hand for the environments, the character models, they were just absolutely gorgeous. And I was playing, obviously it's a PS5 exclusive right now. So I was playing on a PS5 on a 4K TV and I was playing it on fidelity mode or, or visuals prioritized over performance. But I got to tell you, the performance was absolutely stunning to me. I was constantly just blown away by the amount of stuff going on on screen and a lot of the battles, especially the epic icon boss fights. There was just so much going on and it never skipped a beat, at least in my experience. I never had the game stutter or glitch or buffer or anything. Like it never skipped a beat. It was just smooth the entire time I played the game. So I absolutely loved my time and experiencing the visuals that this game had to offer. Now, when we talk about the sound, I'll just first start off with the voice acting because the character models being what they were and the voice acting that I talked about, lip syncing and all that, the voice acting was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, just absolute top notch of the top notch. Every character was perfectly selected as far as the voice actor for that character and acted so well. I mean, the level of emotion that especially Clive, the voice actor for Clive, that he was able to reach to as far as his range with this character on many different scenes throughout the course of the game, I was absolutely impressed. And just all the characters, really. I mean, just the antagonist, the protagonist, even NPCs and side quest friends that you meet along the journey. I mean, there was just top notch all the way around. There was not a single voice that I can think of. And that it was actually, oh man, that, that's uh, that's pretty uh, pretty rough. Not at all. So the voice acting was the, the best you could hope for in any game. When we talk about next, the music. For me, music is a huge part of any Final Fantasy. And one of the reasons why I fell in love so much with Final Fantasy 7 and 8 and so on and so forth. Well, this game absolutely knocks it out of the park again. There hasn't been any that I'm aware of lyrically sung songs in this game, but it didn't matter to me because the orchestral score was just absolutely amazing. There were many different battle themes that just stuck in my head hours after days after I was playing the game. And I would just sit there and hum the theme as I was going about my day, the different exploration navigational type music melodies that play as you explore the, the Valkyrie desert or the forest or wherever you're going, each area kind of had its specific musical tone and that's to be expected. And honestly, I loved the, the vast majority of them. And I tell you, there are definitely two boss theme musical melodies that you know it's a boss fight when these start playing. Oh, man, they got me absolutely amped to get going. Let's, let's go. Let's get this fight going, man. I am jacked. I'm ready to go. Let's do this. So I just thought they did a phenomenal job with the orchestral score. 
And when it comes to your basic sound effects and things like that, I thought that the game also did a great job of that. I didn't really have anything that sounded out of place. I thought everything going through the menus and navigating those, as well as combat and the different cries of, ha, who, you know, that kind of stuff. Everything just kind of meshed extremely well together. The different sound effects when you activate limit breaks and just, I don't know if you're like me or not, maybe I'm weird, but there are certain sound effects when you do certain actions and games that really, uh, they, they sound right. It makes sense. It, it sounds good for the action that you're performing. It pairs well with that. And I thought all those kinds of scenarios and sounds were perfectly placed within Final Fantasy 16. So from a graphical and sound standpoint, I mean, Square Enix just did an amazing job. I know the budget was insanely high for this game, but it was well spent, <laughs> in my opinion, because it, they just did a great job. I mean, I, I can't ask for anything else from graphics or sound in a game. So I was playing on the PS5, as I've mentioned, and when I play on the PS5, I do alternate between using a soundbar and a 3D Pulse headset. So in the next segment, I'm going to let you know, in my opinion, does playing the game while wearing the 3D Pulse headset have a massive effect on your experience or none at all? Let's go find out. Gamers, if you're like me, when it comes to your play sessions, there are certain scenarios that may dictate a required wearing of a headset, or maybe you just prefer to wear a headset. Honestly, it kind of varies for me back and forth, but I will say when comparing between a soundbar and the headset, let me first start off with the soundbar and just say that I felt like it sounded great coming through my soundbar, especially a lot of the explosions and different things like that, the, the louder moments, they really get that big oomph and extra punch to them when you have that subwoofer going all loud and kind of shaking the floor around you a little bit, depending on how you have it calibrated, of course. But for me, I try to really go for that home theater immersion experience. But bottom line, great experience with the soundbar I have. I have an LG 5.1 soundbar, and it's excellent. But when using that 3D Pulse headset, it uses the 3D audio, the spatial audio that is possible within the PS5 and the 3D Pulse headset. So I am absolutely immersed most of the time when I'm playing games using that headset. Not all games, in my opinion, utilize it to its max potential, but Final Fantasy 16, I would say, is one that definitely does. The musical score that I was talking so highly about just in the last segment, I mean, honestly, you can hear the different strings and notes of some of those songs, and certain clarity can come through that you don't get from the soundbar, at least for me, as well as certain sound effects and maybe some different grunts or groans or, or whatnot that enemies may make when you're hitting them. Certain things just don't come through as separate, if that makes sense, as they do when you're listening on a soundbar or playing and getting your audio from a soundbar. So... I just, I absolutely loved what I experienced with the 3D Pulse headset. And as I say most of the time, I mean, if you want that most immersive experience, I got to tell you, it's, it's all about that 3D Pulse headset because that spatial audio is huge. I mean, there's nothing like hearing where an enemy is coming from or hearing where a, a, a frost attack is shimmering your way and you can hear that shimmer coming from the left-hand side and you can dodge out the way. Uh, but it's just little things like that. Uh, when you're walking through a bustling city, like the oasis town of Dalamil, and there's people everywhere, and as you're walking by, you can overhear conversations, or just the, the random hustle and bustle of things, or walking out in the Valkyrie Desert from Dal Dalamil, and you the, the wind, the way the wind is blowing around in the desert, and just, I don't know, it's just a great thing. But the big thing here is, does wearing the 3D Pulse headset have a massive effect on your experience, or will you be just as fine or better off without it? 
Well, to be honest with you, I would say it's probably pretty much a tie for me here. I almost want to give the edge to the 3D Pulse headset, but at the same time, when I really sit there and think about my experiences playing either or, there wasn't a whole lot of difference that I feel that I walked away with while utilizing the headset. Sure, there are some great things about it, but at the end of the day, I still felt that I got just as good of an experience utilizing that soundbar as I did the 3D Pulse. Now let's go check out my thoughts on the game's controls. As we now look into the details of my thoughts on the controls of Final Fantasy 16, I will say that it is a PS5 console exclusive at the time of this review. And therefore, I am playing, obviously, I'm going to be referencing a DualSense controller. That is the controller I use to play through the game, obviously. So, this is a third-person RPG action-adventure game, so you're going to be playing using dual analog control. Left analog stick is to control Clive. Right analog stick controls the camera. Look, I didn't have any problems with Clive as a character control is concerned. I thought he moved very fluid throughout the environment. He felt tethered to the environment in a good way. The only odd thing with his personal character movement would have been whenever you try to do sharp turns and things like that, it was almost, and I've seen it in other games before, where he kind of spins in place in a way. It's almost like he's on a top, if you will. But it was never a detriment or anything really bad, and it's it's not really a negative thing. I'm just saying that it, it was an interesting notation of mine as I was playing throughout the course of the game. Now, camera movement with the right analog stick was never any issue for me. I always felt full control over the camera and its direction, the movement, the speed of it was great. Some games, you're just all over the place because it's way too loose. In other games, it just takes forever to turn just from left to right. So this game, I thought, had a great camera control. The implementation together also worked really well. So when it comes to the options button, that's going to bring up, obviously, just your basic menu of save, load game, exit the main menu, that kind of stuff. The touchpad was used to bring up your different tabs of inventory and player menu options, whether it's going through your map or looking at the icon abilities you have and that you can upgrade, your inventory, the gear that you have equipped, all these different things are right there for you. Your journal, obviously, to see what quests you have and which ones are active, side quests, main quests, that kind of stuff. And navigation through this journal or this player menu was very fluid. And one thing I've seen more and more of, and I would like to continue to see more and more of in games, is when you're in menu navigation, Cyberpunk was like this, Atomic Heart, and also Final Fantasy 16. There are two different possible ways you can navigate the inventory screens or just the screens in general, whether it's uh, you know kind of an up, down, left, right direction with the D-pad and or analog sticks, or there's, uh, like in this case, it's a circular icon of Final Fantasy 16 that just hovers over everything, and you can move it with the right analog stick once in that menu, and you can just go and hover right over to where you want to go, press X to enter into it, and it just makes it, in my opinion, a lot easier. And it cuts a little bit of time off if you're just, you know, trying to go the, the fastest route possible. So overall, menu navigation was great. Utilizing the D-pad now, they had some interesting functions for the D-pad. It was really only limited to combat, and you could alternate between commands for Torgal, the pet dog or wolf that I had mentioned earlier, as well as this is how you will use high potions or, or potions, uh, different healing items and uh, stat buffs and things like that. During the course of combat is with the up, right, or down 
directions on the D-pad. If you press left, it'll alternate you between Torgal and that item wheel. And with Torgal, you can do commands like there's two different attack commands and then there's one for him to heal Clive. So that is an interesting implementation and one that I actually didn't, I didn't like at first, but as I continued through the game, I actually enjoyed it. So I like that. One thing I really liked as well was the L1 button being used as the lock-on option. If you've heard my reviews before, you'll know I'm very big on having a lock-on option for enemies during combat. And I was very happy that this game had that because it is crucial, in my opinion. Sometimes it's the right move to not be locked on when there's a group of enemies. But I would say more often than not, I much prefer to have the lock-on option. And so this game did it well. I thoroughly enjoyed it. thought the camera was perfectly executed when it comes to lock-on because sometimes too in games I've played where the lock-on it locks onto an enemy but my god the camera will cut way too close or you can't even see the enemy you're locked onto anymore I never had any of those problems with this game so that was great and then when we look at the R1 button uh, R1 was basically the dodge button which threw me and my wife off massively at first because we had just gotten off of playing Star Wars Jedi Survivor which uses the circle button which honestly I would say most games on PlayStation use the circle button as the dodge button and for us it was just really difficult at first to make that transition from not pressing circle to pressing R1 and circle speaking of that is actually used in this game as an option for an icon ability. Depending on which icon you have equipped or active at the time in battle, it depends or dictates what that circle button is going to do for you. So there's many different options there. The X button is utilized for jump, which is both in combat and out of it. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a platformer by any means. So when I say jump, it's going to be very minimal what you're jumping. Like, I mean, just the, the very smallest cliff edge you can jump, and not even a box can Clive clear. I mean, he just doesn't really have a whole lot of ups. <laughs> and I don't even, honestly, I questioned a couple times throughout the game, like, why did they even have a jump option in here? Now, I will say in combat, it's a different story. Combat, the man's got some ups. And I actually thoroughly enjoyed having the option to jump, especially when you got into combat with winged or flying creatures or enemy types like dragons and different vultures and things like that. So it does come in handy during during those scenarios. So that's what X is utilized for, plus, you know, interacting with NPCs and talking to characters and command prompts and opening chests and, and things like that and doors. Now, there are certain doors that you can open that requires the use of holding in the R2 button. That is where the very minimal haptic feedback or adaptive triggers, I should say, the adaptive triggers are used in this sense where you hold down the R2 button. And it's typically in a scenario where Clive comes to a big, heavy door and a prompt action comes, our icon comes up for you to press and hold R2 and you hold it, let it go, and he pushes open the heavy door. So that's really the only time outside of the other use of R2 where adaptive triggers are used. And that other use is when you're exploring the world. After a certain point, you do get a chocobo that you can ride and summon at any point in time. And when you're riding the chocobo, you can actually hold in the R2 button to sprint. And that has like a little bit of a adaptive trigger feel to it, a little tension. So that was pretty cool. But I would say when it comes to the uses of the other face buttons, like square and triangle, square is your basic attack button. So when you're in combat, you're just mashing on square, trying to perform combos, and you can combine a button prompt with 
square and X to do things, a move like a, a lunge is a move that you could do when you press square and X at the same time. Things like that. There's multiple different combinations of button uh, presses that you can do. Now, triangle, that is what is designated as your magic using button. Now, you just tap it and it's rapid fire. Whatever icon you have active at the time, you can use that to press triangle and rapid fire some ice or some fireballs. Or you can press and hold it down to do a charged attack that obviously does a, a actual a decent amount more damage. Now, the final trigger is the L2 trigger, and that actually is used for alternating between the different icons that you have equipped at a given time. You can have up to three icons equipped, and pressing L2 cycles you through them. And as you're cycling through them, they each have different abilities that are designated to face buttons, and you can hold down the R2 button or trigger and then you can utilize, like say if you hold down R2, you can then press square or triangle or whichever ability of the icon you want to use at that given time. So I felt like the controller was extremely well laid out. And given all that you can do within the game, whether it's exploration or combat, I, I thought that they maximized Square Enix, that is, the usage of the dual sense. But when using the dual sense, I always do this next segment where I give my opinion on Playing on the PS5 and using a dual sense, is there a dual sense difference? Do you get a different experience when using that dual sense as opposed to, say, when it comes to Xbox? Are you going to have a different experience by using this dual sense controller? Let's find out. <laughs> So is playing with the DualSense controller, is there a difference, a massive difference in your experience from what those who on the Xbox may have whenever they are able to play this game? So I had mentioned in the previous segment about the fact that when you're controlling the Chocobo, you can feel the adaptive triggers pull, a little tension there on the right trigger. And also there are certain button prompts where you have to press and hold R2 when you're opening bigger, heavier doors. To be honest with you gamers, outside of that, as far as the adaptive triggers, which are my favorite part about the DualSense, there's really nothing else that I would feel considerably differentiates itself from what you're probably going to experience on an Xbox controller. Now, don't get me wrong, the haptic feedback is there, and that's great, but Xbox controllers also have haptic feedback. So while they don't have those adaptive triggers, I feel like, okay, Opening bigger doors, heavier doors every now and then, and running around every now and then. At least for me, I didn't utilize the Chocobo all that often. So minimalist things, in my opinion, are what the adapter triggers are used for in this game. And I feel like there could have been a whole lot more, like during combat. There could have just been so much more utilizing those adapter triggers. And I feel like there was a lot of missed opportunities here in this game. So while I didn't have any problems with the controls at all, and I did appreciate what was there on the couple of things that the adapter triggers did and how good the haptic feedback was that was there, at the end of the day, I personally do not feel that there is a dual sense difference when playing this game on a PS5. Now let's go check out the details of Final Fantasy 16's gameplay. Gamers, it's time to dive really deep into the details that belong to Final Fantasy 16. And if by some chance you did not know, obviously this is an action RPG, role-playing game as it were, and it's very heavy on that as well as the action. 
So again, I know there's been a lot of controversy around the amount of that action and the way things are implemented within the game as opposed to previous Final Fantasies, but let's dissect all those details and see what my personal opinion was. So obviously it's controlled from the third person perspective as you explore the world, and there is free camera movement, which I absolutely loved. Some of those earlier Final Fantasy games, they had stationary, pre-rendered, pre-fixed camera positions, and as much as I love those old PlayStation 1 games and even the PS2 on Final Fantasy X, there was just, there's something to be said about having free reigning control of the camera. As you're exploring the world, you're going to be obviously controlling Clive. He's the only character you control throughout the entirety of the time. And we'll talk about world exploration first as far as from a gameplay perspective. You have multiple ways that you can explore this world of Valistia. Obviously, we've already talked about the character of Clive. You can run around as him on foot. But you also can use a chocobo. And that is a pretty fun method and also a good alternative if you're looking to move around a bit quicker. I will say that the game does offer an automatic speed boost to Clive's running. I would say he's kind of at a jog as his normal pace, but once you get out into the open world and you're jogging for a few seconds, the game automatically does kind of like a speed burst to him, and he goes into what I'll just consider a sprint. Now, as soon as you stop or turn a corner or just pull back a bit on the joystick, it will stop him full stop. And then you'll just start off at that jog and then move into a sprint again as you are on a straight line, essentially. Uh, you you kind of have a little bit of leeway left or right. But regardless, that's pretty much how you control him throughout the world. There is, as I mentioned, a jump option. But I will say I don't think that you're ever really going to need, per se, to jump anywhere. There's really not a whole lot of... Uh, ledges that you need to jump or climb over to. There's also definitely not any kind of gaps or chasms that you're going to need to clear by jumping. This is definitely not a platformer, and it does not have that kind of gameplay implemented into it. So you don't have to worry about that, but the option is there just in case you get caught on a cliff edge or something like that is the only real thing I can think of. Or maybe the developers put it in there more so from a combat perspective, which, as I stated earlier, I do feel that it is a, a big deal and a good thing to have the jump for the combat. Now, the Chocobo, outside of just kind of sprinting on it, galloping as it's called within the game, uh, there really is not much else to it outside of just kind of, oh, it's kind of cool, I have a Chocobo. But it is there as an option for you if Clive's sprint speed is just, just not quick enough for you. Now, outside of that, you do have the option to fast travel. So that is a massive, massive thing because if you're like me and you're trying to do all kinds of side quests that are all over the world at a given point in time or you know, just in general, even if you're trying to track down different hunts from the hunting board and the notorious marks that you go after, that would be really, really frustrating and very time-consuming if Square Enix had required you to travel from point A to point B on foot or on a chocobo. So definitely have the fast travel option here, which is vastly appreciated on my end. Now, as you're exploring this world, there is a ton for you to see and do. You're going to come across villages, massive cities, forests, large expansive deserts, plains, and coastlines. So there's a massive variety, pretty much every type of variety of landscape you could think of in a world, this game has it. The only one that it doesn't have that I was very disappointed that the game did not take you to is the snowy capped mountains of the north. You never go to the north in this game. And granted, they do put out there in the game's dialogue and within the lore that those northern mountain areas have been taken over by the Blight. This, uh, basically this uh, plague that is taking over slowly the entire world. So I get it. 
But at the same time, it's like, man, you guys could have found a way to get us up there. But either way, every kind of type of environment you could hope to search for. And the villages, honestly, the one thing I did appreciate about them is none of them are what I would consider too big. I've played RPGs where I felt like, man, you know, I do like to have a large city to explore, but I don't need every city that I come to to be the size of Paris in Assassin's Creed Unity. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, There's something to be said about a just a, a good, solid-sized village. Even small villages, those are nice, especially as you're passing through multiple ones throughout your journey. And I did feel that the cities that you do go through, the game is very linear. Let me just say that. So for the most part, within the cities and the confines of certain areas, especially indoor environments that you go through, the game is very linear. There's that linear path that you're kind of forced to stay on in certain segments of the game. Now, the massive open world areas or biomes, those you pretty much have, you know, the, the run of the land. Now, I will say, unfortunately, there is no swim option in this game. So if you see bodies of water, whether it be lakes or swamps or ponds or the ocean, you can't get in any of them. I guess Clive is not a swimmer, so it is that invisible barrier there to keep you from going into them, which I was disappointed in because if you know me and you've listened to my show, you know that I absolutely love swimming and exploring underwater in my games. So as you go through these cities and villages, there are plenty of NPCs to talk to, there's item shops to browse, side quests to pick up and complete, hunting board with notorious marks that you can get that I mentioned earlier. And that is one thing that'll kind of lead me into the side quest of this game, because obviously it goes without saying, you have a main quest that you're following throughout the course of your play, but a big thing with a lot of games, most games anymore I feel like, but especially RPGs, side quests are a massive component to the overall gameplay experience. And in Final Fantasy 16, I'll be honest, I was a little worried at the beginning because the side quests that you get are essentially fetch quests. And I was massively worried that this was going to be what the entirety of the game's list of side quests was going to entail. Is just simply talk to a character, hey, I need this item, it's on this monster at this location, go and fight the monster, get the item, bring it back, and all's good, quest completed, thanks, have a great day. Thankfully... That is not the case throughout the entirety of the game. I really wish that Square Enix would have mixed it up a little bit more in the beginning because some gamers may not be as patient as myself or may not play as far into it as myself and therefore have the wrong impression of overall what these side quests have the potential and ultimately do become. I will say that yes, as you get further into the game, I would say once you get to about the halfway point of the main story, man, every single side quest after is just absolutely banger after banger after banger. And they they honestly continue to escalate and just even more <laughs> positive. Like they start out, oh man, everything this is a really good quest. Oh wow, that was awesome. Man, this is amazing. Wow, this is I'm crying during this side quest. What is going on here? So bottom line is there is a great upward trend in the back half of the game with the quality of the side quest, the length of the side quests, and just all the kind of different stuff that you can do within them. So I absolutely loved, overall, that saved the side quests for me in this game. I overall loved the side quests the game had to offer. Now there is the hunting board that I've mentioned, and there are notorious marks or beasts slash enemies that are out throughout the world. And what I liked about this hunting board is it doesn't just, for the most part, tell you, hey, this <laughs> this enemy is going to be at this location. They tell you the general location of where it's going to be for most of them. Some of them, they don't even give you that. 
But there's always, each one of them has like a little paragraph of a story that you can read, and it's basically in reference to the beast and its location. And some of these, you have to actually read that paragraph and then kind of decipher and figure out where that location is that they're talking about. So I actually thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of detective work uh, when it comes to notorious marks and finding and hunting them down. And these enemies are typically always harder or more difficult enemies than you're going to fight randomly throughout the course of the game. And they all had a different grading system of uh, basically I told you whether how hard it was going to be. And I never saw anything below a C, but there was C, B, A, and S. And let me tell you, there's very few S ranked monsters in the hunting board out of 32 monsters to fight. I would say that they're probably on one hand, you could count the amount of S-ranked monsters. So that was honestly not a bad thing for me. I will say there was definitely some some gimme uh, enemies, but man, there was two of those S-ranked beasts really, really gave me a run for my money. Uh, the, the two most difficult enemies the entire game, end boss included. So I have more trouble on those two than I did on the end boss in the game. So that just always kind of cracks me up. And that's I feel like that's always kind of been the case with Final Fantasy games, though, and a lot of RPGs where the side quest bosses are a lot of times more difficult or take more more uh, patience, let's say, <laughs> than a final boss of the game does. So outside of the hunting board and side quests and everything, there are these other things called chronoliths. And these are basically stone monuments that you find throughout the world at different places. There's a total of seven of them, and each one of them represents an, an elemental icon. And you basically have to go through four stages, the fourth stage being a boss, three stages being different waves of enemies that you fight. And you can only use the certain abilities that they allow you to use for that monument or chronolith's respective uh, icon. So if you're using the lightning icon, for instance, you can only use the two lightning abilities they allow you to throughout the course of the chronolith. And I had a lot of very close calls as far as victories when it comes to these chronoliths, but I had a lot of fun with them. So if you want to check those out in the details, some of them I have clips of, pics of, on my Instagram account, check that out. But outside of the chronolith, there is another stone that you can find at the hideaway. It's called an Erit stone. And essentially, this is something very brand new to Final Fantasy as far as I'm concerned. It was kind of unique. It has different options like stage replay, arcade mode. You can replay the chronoliths that I just mentioned with more difficult enemies and tighter time limits, as well as just basic training. If you just want to go in there, you don't earn XP or ability points or anything like that, but you can go in there and kind of try to hone your skills and get your muscle memory down and whatnot when it comes to combat. But stage replay, you can just choose any section or point of story in the game and it's set up as a stage and you can go through and replay it. Arcade mode, it basically is the same thing. You can replay these sequences, but you can do it with being scored while doing it. And then you get ranked on a leaderboard, whoever is playing the game uh, as far as friends list or anybody around the world. And you can kind of see how you stack up score-wise based upon these other players on the leaderboard. So there's a lot for you to do in this game is the bottom line. And, you know, it's not just enough as far as doing these things, but getting around doing them. So how is the map navigation is my point here. So, well, Map navigation in the game, I thought, was actually really well done. I wasn't a fan of it at first, to be honest, but once I understood it, I was like, oh, okay, I actually like this. You can't really 
pinpoint uh, specific places to go. You can only, every key city or location on the map, you can fast travel to them. Sometimes the game will force you and lock out everything but the one location you have to go to in the story, in the main story. And that, that got kind of annoying sometimes where it was kind of forcing you along the main storyline path and taking control out of my hands. That sometimes got on my nerves. But overall, it wasn't that big of a deal. So map navigation when you're in the menu, though, it's a very detailed map, and I really enjoyed that. The information that it gives you when you hover over a location, I thought that was actually really well done and appreciated that. And overall, I didn't have any issues with the map navigation, zoom in, zoom out, all that. Now, when we talk about menu navigation, again, didn't really have any issues. I talked about that in the controls. It was really easy to kind of navigate back and forth between the tabs and, you know, whether it's the map or your ability screen where you can go in there and use ability points that you earn by fighting and defeating enemies and completing quests and different things like that. Those ability points are then used to purchase and upgrade different icon abilities for the icons that you have unlocked at the current time. Of course, you're going to have other options too, like accessing your inventory and looking and seeing what items you have, whether it's necessary for story progression or just different items of whether it's potions or high potions or all those different restorative uh, items that you can use throughout the course of a game. The big thing that I always focused on was my gear. And the gear is basically any accessories that you have equipped, of which you can only have three at a time, which I will say that did kind of bug me a little bit. I get it. You have to be very selective with what you choose. But man, the three accessories, and then obviously there were uh, weapon uh, selections that you could choose from and different things like that. So unfortunately, I just wish that there was a little bit more leeway with the amount that you could equip because... I felt like, my God, the game just kind of floods you with a ton of options, and you're very limited with what you can actually use. And I guess it's forcing you to try them out and, and different ones and see which ones you actually need or like or fit your play style. But outside of just that, there was also the icons and those abilities you can actually equip once you get enough uh, of the icons to where you have to choose which ones you equip. You can actually interchange and uh, equip different icons and have them designated to certain face buttons. You can also equip different icon abilities to where you have essentially uh, access to six different icon abilities, potentially from six different icons. So I thought that was actually good. They allowed you to do that. And ultimately, I really did feel that they allowed you to make your Clive your own between not necessarily his appearance, because that's automatically done throughout the course of progression in the game, but definitely as far as his gear and the icons that you use and the abilities for those icons that you use, I really did feel like you could drill down and be the Clive that you want to be and use the icons and abilities that cater to your playstyle. Because, for instance, my me and my wife very much differed on the icons and the icons abilities that we used. So I did think that was an awesome uh, option that they gave you. Now, ability points and XP, obviously you level up. The game does have a level progression for character level. There is a, a cap of level 50 within the base game. Now, when you do play through New Game Plus on Final Fantasy mode, the cap is doubled to level 100, so that is there for you, and you can still earn XP and feel like it matters in a second playthrough if you so chose to do so. And, you know, obviously combat is the next final piece here that I really want to dive into. 
And I mean, there's a lot of things like the basics of combat. I felt the basics of just kind of jumping into a random fight, hacking away with, you know, button spamming the square button for attacking with the sword and, you know, kind of mixing that up with a couple of button combos to do a nice little combo. And once you kind of earn or learn the different moves that work best for you as far as the icon abilities and you get that muscle memory down, I mean, it kind of becomes just that. It's a, it's a muscle memory with each random encounter. And then that somewhat does transition into boss fights. Now, I will say that I did cater and, and change up my play style, my fighting style for boss fights more so than I did with regular random fights. I was much more defensive and kind of tried to have a little bit more patience during a boss fight than I did when it came to random enemies that I would fight. But I did feel like the basics of, you know, utilizing your element ability that you're equipped with at the time, whether it's fire, ice, lightning, wind, whatever the case may be with the triangle button and spamming that or holding it the charge shot and just regular combos, as I mentioned, all the basics I thought were there, the dodging and everything that I talked about in the control segment. I thought dodging was great and I loved that they reward you for perfect timing on the dodges. Uh, even when you also have an enemy attacking you, if you happen to hit them at the same exact time they're coming to hit you, there is a slowdown real quick and they're kind of vulnerable. The big thing with enemies in the combat, though, is they have not just a health meter, but a will meter. And as you continue to attack them, it drains their will meter much slower than their life meter typically. But as the will meter goes down at a halfway point, they stagger a little bit. And then there is a major stagger when you drain their entirety of will. And at that point, man, you can just go off on them. Because depending on the, the enemy at the time, some enemies' stagger bar lasts longer than others. And you can just use that opportunity, at least I did, to just go ham on them with all kinds. It just flooded the icon abilities, one right after the other, every single one. Now, all these icon abilities, once you use them, there is a cooldown time after using them. And depending on what level of upgrades you have depends on how long that cooldown is as well as how severe and how good essentially the move is so if it's a very high level of damage that a move can cause typically it takes longer for it to cool down than a basic move a, a basic icon ability that just says adds flame to your sword <laughs> so you got to be kind of mindful of that thinking about those things and once you integrate everything into the combat and you get your style, I just think it's absolutely awesome. So I absolutely loved the combat in this game. I know a lot of people had said that they were disappointed with the more action-focused and oriented style, but I personally loved it. I feel like every Final Fantasy game for a while now has been going more towards an action style. And yes, the ATB bar and, and menu and all that with the menu options of attack, items, so on and so forth. Yes, that is completely gone and you're just straight up attacking and it's real time. But I actually really liked that and I appreciated that. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. I will say the game is very much more focused on the story, I think, than a lot of other games. So there, it seems that there's less going on in the world sometimes than there has been in previous Final Fantasy games. But I think it's because you're kind of just so focused and drawn in on what's happening with Clive and his you know, specific group of characters that sometimes you can get out of the global impact of what's happening that in some other Final Fantasy games you might would have gotten. But overall, I mean, between the world exploration, character upgrades and progression and the different side things you can do between side quests and chronoliths and the hunting board and just navigating the map in the world and upgrading and acquiring icon abilities and 
figuring out which ones work for you at which points in time and, and different types of battles between bosses and everything. I absolutely loved everything that was on offer here and, and just had an absolute blast in every option that Square Enix offered to me throughout my course of play of Final Fantasy 16. Now, let's go check in on the thoughts I had on the game's photo mode. Going into Final Fantasy 16, I could not wait to see what the game's photo mode was like. Because if you know me and you've listened to my reviews in the past, you know I am very passionate when it comes to photo mode. And there are specific things that I look for in any game that I play that actually does have a dedicated photo mode. So when I review these modes in this segment right here, on the reviews that I do, the few things that I look for... The first thing is accessibility. How easy is it to get in and out of the photo mode? So I do prefer a one-step access, meaning like in Assassin's Creed, as I always use, for example, you just click in the two analog sticks and boom, it's photo mode. As opposed to pausing the game and scrolling down to a certain menu option tab or going into the player option menu, which is the case in Final Fantasy 16 here, and scrolling over to a select screen and then pressing the touchpad to bring up the photo mode. So... Right out the gate, Final Fantasy 16 has, in my opinion, a very cumbersome accessibility to it. I hated the multi multiple step process of getting to the photo mode, pausing the game and bringing up the player menu, scrolling over a couple of tabs to get to the page where photo mode is an option, and then pressing the touchpad to bring up photo mode. I thought that was just way too many steps just to bring up photo mode. And then, as far as some other details I look for, Next thing I look for is camera control. How good is the camera control? How much control do you have over the camera? Depth of field, height, whether it's raising it or lowering it, and just different 360 degree control. How much, because sometimes in some games they have these invisible barriers where you can't really line up the shot the way that you want to. So how does Final Fantasy 16 fare? Well, as far as the camera options, there's not really a whole lot, to be honest with you. You can go up or down, you can kind of spin around, but it does have very minor invisible barriers that I was talking about. And there's not a whole lot you can do outside of depth of field. And you can change the blur on or off or the intensity of it or the focus of it. So there is some of those options there, but there's just not a whole lot else. I didn't really see a whole lot of filter options, if any. There were no borders or frames or anything else that I like that, that I would consider fun. Uh, a lot of the features like emotes or poses or stickers or any of those things, they, the game had absolutely none of those. Pretty much the only thing you could do in this photo mode once you accessed it was move the camera around for you know a, a different angle or two. And then once you got in, you could zoom in, zoom out, raise up, raise down. But... I really did not feel like there was hardly any options that really should have been in this kind of a game, in my opinion. This massive RPG, this beautiful world, these great-looking character models, all these different cool things that you do animations-wise to capture those, I mean, that would have just been just awesome to be able to capture. And, I, and don't get me wrong, I felt like I did get some cool shots from the game, but overall, I was extremely disappointed with the lack of options that the game offered in its photo mode. And... Ultimately, there are three different types of ratings that I give when I review a game's photo mode. It's either going to be a work of art, which is the best that you can get, uh, a masterpiece, which would be second in line, or just don't even bother. Like, you, you just go back to the drawing board. You shouldn't have even bothered with putting this out. So, for me, 
I would say, if you couldn't tell, that for Final Fantasy 16, the photo mode, I would have said, go back to the drawing board. If you're going to put the photo mode in there, especially in this kind of a game, Square Enix, I feel like you really should put forth the effort to make it truly something special. Now let's go check out the ship's chronometer to find out how long it took me to beat the game, as well as how long it may take you to beat the game, based on your playstyle. First, I'll take a look at the ship's chronometer and share with you gamers how long it took me to beat Final Fantasy 16. So, this game, I unfortunately did not do a Platinum Pursuit. I would have loved to have the Platinum in this game, but there is a single trophy that really kind of kept me from doing that, and that is a trophy for completing the game on Final Fantasy mode, which you cannot play until a second playthrough. And I was not really in the position or having the desire to play through it a second time. So I did try to go after and did get every other trophy that I wanted to outside of three other random miscellaneous trophies. And I was very happy with that, pleased with that, and content enough to walk away. To do all that, to do all those things, all the side quests in the game, all the chronoliths, all the hunting board, notorious marks, all that good stuff, it took me right at about 108 hours in order to complete all of that from start to finish. Now... If you are just looking to play through the game's story, I would say that you could probably play through the story, and I would say about half that amount of time. Probably 50 to 60 hours is what you're looking at. If you're just going from main objective, main quest objective, to main quest objective, that's probably going to still be about 50 to 60 hours. It's a pretty lengthy game just in general. Now, if you do some little dabbling here or there, decide, to, you know what, the side quest sounds interesting, but a few of these other ones don't then I would say you're probably looking at closer to 80 hours. So I would say that if you're looking to be a completionist about it, though, get the Platinum and do everything the game has to offer, which, again, includes a second playthrough. Even though you're going through the game really quickly the second time, I'm still going to say you're probably going to top out at about 150 hours to get a Platinum and do everything if you're a completionist in this game. Now let's go check out and see what my final thoughts and review score are. Gamers, as I sit back and look at Final Fantasy 16 as a whole package, and I think back on the almost 110 hours that I put into the game, all the story elements and characters and just the visuals, the combat, the fun that I had, overall, it was exactly what I needed, to be honest with you. Final Fantasy 16 has gotten a lot of flack online, and a lot of people, it's, it's a very divisive game. You have Final Fantasy fans on one side saying that it's not a true Final Fantasy game and the opposite on the other. And so many different things here or there. For me, this story was so amazing and compelling and enrapturing me. I mean, it just the characters and the storyline had me hook, line, and sinker just about the entirety of the game. I would say 95 to 98% of this game, I could not wait to progress the story, to see what was happening with characters, to see what was going to happen in general. And to learn more about the world and the lore and the world of Valistia and the two continents of Storm and Ash. Like, I absolutely loved learning about these areas and locations and characters and myths and all this stuff that doesn't really exist, but in the world. And as I was playing this game, it felt real. You know, I was that enraptured by it to where I just, I wanted to keep learning. Give me more. Give me more. And it was on top of that, the combat, the exploration, the different 
fun functionalities of the icons and their different abilities. I mean, there was just so much for me to love about this game. And once you get it, it's one of those things that once you figure it out and you understand what how the game is supposed to be played, it's it's a beautiful thing. I mean, the combat is just awesome once you really get your groove. It's just, man, it's, it, again, it's a beautiful thing. So between every category that I could possibly think of to review or look at in this game... I felt like it nailed it in every single category. So for me, I have to give this game a final score of 10 out of 10. And therefore, it's the latest game to earn my Captain's Bounty Award. I only award those games that I give a 10 out of 10 to. And it is a very select group, as it should be. I think there's less than 10 still at this point over the course of my four seasons of the show. And Final Fantasy 16 is absolutely deserving of being added to that list. That'll do it for my review of Final Fantasy 16. I hope you've enjoyed your time aboard the SS Gamer. You can join its crew by reaching out to me via email at lostatseagaming365 at gmail.com, as well as searching for Hulking Yoda on the Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switch networks. You can also find me on social media on threads and Instagram at Lost at Sea Gaming and on Twitter at Lost at Sea, G-A-M-I-N, the number one. Thank you for listening, and until the sea says otherwise, we'll keep sailing.